So we've been in this series called Long Story Short, because we've said that, hey, everyone's got a long story short. We have this way that we look at life, this grid we look through that says, hey, how do I live life? Why should I respond this way? What does it mean for me to do this in life? Everyone has a long story short. And we've been saying that, hey, the Bible has one too, and it tells us how we should live. And we've been saying that this long story short of the Bible is like a puzzle, right? Sometimes we look at the different pieces of it, and it doesn't make sense because we're like, okay, there's maybe some blue and pink on this one. And so sometimes what we do is we take these pieces and we try to apply it to a situation of life over here. We try to say, well, I think this one works over there. Or, or, or we're like, well, I, this looks like it'll work here, right? And we take these pieces of the Bible and sometimes misapply them because we're only looking at the pieces. When instead, like a puzzle, it all comes together with this big picture, and to know what the picture is, you have to look at the box, right? Fun facts. I like minions. But you look at the box, right, to see the picture, the overall picture that it's trying to make. And so all those pieces fit together. And we've said that's the same thing with the story of the Bible, that there's all these different pieces of it that actually fit together. And sometimes we can miss the whole picture if we're just looking at one piece. And so we're like, hey, let's look at this long story short, right? Say, okay, hey, boil down, this is what it looks like. We've been looking at this long story in six different acts, six different acts. In act one, two weeks ago, we looked at creation. We looked at creation. It said, God created the world, and it was very good. He said, hey, it was great. It was good. It was perfect. It was beautiful. It was right. It was made to be that way. And he had six days of creation that he did it all in, and then he rested on the seventh, right? And so God created, right? Made this in a certain way that's like, yeah, that's how life is supposed to be. But then when we look at life today, it's like, wait a second. There's a difference there. That's not how life is supposed to be. What's different today? What happened? It's kind of like those, have you guys ever shopped on like Wish or Amazon and you've seen the product picture and then it arrives and it's like, that is not what the picture looked like. You guys seen that? It's kind of like that idea. I got some examples. Like, let's say you want to buy this pillowcase, this dinosaur pillowcase. It's got this like dinosaur thing. You're like, oh yeah, it looks cute. You're like, I want that for my kid, right? And you're like, it looks kind of like a fun shape and you order it, but by the time it gets there, it's the picture of the kid on the dinosaur pillow that's the pillowcase. It's like, wait a second, that's not how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the dinosaur pillowcase. That didn't, what? That's not how it's supposed to be, right? Or let's say that you're looking to buy a nice big blanket. You're like, I like that huge thread. It's like nice and comfy. And I, I want to get that blanket. When it arrives, it looks like gray intestines. It's like, that's not how it's supposed to be, right? That's not what the picture said. Or let's say you're getting a new pair of Yeezys off of eBay and you're like, hey, look at that, good price maybe, and I get these new shoes that are pretty flaming right now, right? And then they get here and they look like slippers. It's like, wait a second, that's not what it's supposed to be. Like, I spent a lot of money on that, right? Or let's say it's been getting nice outside, right? You're like, okay, I need some new lawn chairs. And say, so, hey, let, let, me, let me get this new plastic chair. It fits well with the, the theme I'm going on. It's only eight bucks, right? It's like, it gets there. And it's tiny. It's like, ha, ah, that's why it was eight bucks. It's for a dollhouse. That's not how it was supposed to be, right? You, all that funny pictures, right, to show that that's sometimes what it feels like in life. We look at the garden, we're like, that's how it's supposed to be, perfect and beautiful. But something happened, right? That's not what we see today. We see a lot of brokenness, hurt, and pain. 
Why is that? Well, last week we looked at Act 2. Jonathan did an awesome job covering that, and it was the curse. That's what we looked at last week. And so whatever your long story short is, you have to be able to explain why the world is messed up in the way that it is today. The Bible's long story short says that man made the mess. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, hey, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for this one tree. And they disobeyed God and ate from that tree. And that sin brought sin into the world. It then infects and affects everything that we now have. We're now born with what we call a sin nature. And Jonathan said it well. He says, we're not sinners because we sinned. We sin because we are sinners. It's part of who we are now in this broken world. And that's different from being a mistake-er. It's not like, oh, I just made a mistake. I can brush it off. It's okay. I'll try it better next time. No, it's just a sinner versus mistake. It's just who we are. That's what happens in this broken world. And so that's a hard and uncomfortable topic to wrestle through. But it, like we said, it's one piece of the whole puzzle that actually helps this story look so much more beautiful. When we fully understand the weight of our sin, we can greater understand the love of God. It's a key part of the story. But from this moment, right, after Genesis, right, the world just continues to spiral downward, right? After that, they, Adam and Eve have kids, and one of them ends up killing their brother, right? It's just crazy. The first murder, it's like, oh my goodness, that's huge. It's called the story of Cain and Abel, right? Cain is frustrated with how God looked at his offering compared to Abel, and so he kills his brother. Straight up, just kills his brother. The world continues to multiply in wickedness, so God eventually just hits the reset button with the flood. You've heard of maybe the story of Noah in the flood, and so it got so evil, it was just Noah and his family that were the righteous ones, and so he used them to repopulate the earth. But it continued to spiral down in wickedness because we were just naturally sinners. And eventually, man tried to make their own name for themselves and say, hey, look at us, look at our strength and not God's, right? This was at the Tower of Babel, if you know that story. But God was like, no, this is not what I wanted you guys to do. And he scattered them, right? So what was made as very good in the garden is now very bad. What was created with order is now in disorder. What was beautiful now broken. And so the natural question that we ask when we come to this part of the story, well, what is God going to do with all this? How is he going to fix it? Because he created it to be this way. Is he just going to let it spiral out of control and things will just happen? Does he not care anymore? What's he going to do? We naturally ask, well, how is this creator going to deal with the corruption? How is this ruler going to deal with rebellion? How is the designer going to fix the brokenness that we see in the world. It's just a natural question that we have. Like, what, what is, what's going on now? What, now what? The cool thing is we see this creator, ruler, designer God is also a pursuing, chasing, and promise-keeping God. If you guys are taking notes, I basically went to the end for us already, right? This is really where we're landing. God is a pursuing, chasing, promise-keeping God. That's what we're talking about today in Act 3. Acts 3 is what we're going to call covenant. Right? It's not really a name we throw around, a word we throw around today, but that's what we're covering around today is that God is ch- pursuing, chasing, and promise-keeping God. we got a lot to cover today, guys. We're covering Genesis 12 to Malachi, which is the rest of the Old Testament. Okay, that's a lot of books to cover in like 
30 minutes now, okay? So buckle up with me. It's going to be a fun ride, but this will help us understand this long story short through this theme of covenant, how God's a promise-keeping God. And like I said, it's not really a word we throw around all the time, right? And so uh, we have a definition from the Bible Project. They describe it like this. Covenant is an English translation of a Hebrew and Greek word that describes a formal relationship between two parties who can agree to a set of promises so they can work together toward a common goal. It's the definition of a covenant. And today we really understand a consumer relationship. We understand contractual relationships. But it's harder for us to stay in covenant relationships right away. So I really like how Tim Keller explains the difference of a covenant relationship. He says this, The relationship, the covenant relationship, is more loving and intimate than simply a legal relationship, yet it is more binding, endearing, and accountable than merely a personal relationship. It is a personal relationship that is made more loving and more intimate because it is legal through voluntary, mutual, and binding promises and vows to be loving and to be faithful no matter what the circumstances. Does that maybe key you into, where are our married people in the room? Who's married, right? All you guys, you know, we're a part of a covenant. Did you know that? Right? You make a covenant with marriage. Right? You say, hey, you're making these promises, these commitments, these vows to be there no matter what. Right? You're part of a covenant if you're married. And that's a great way to understand what these covenants are like. And God makes a lot of these covenants with people throughout Scripture. And so when we look at the long story short, covenants are a great way to see how this story plays out. To see, hey, yeah, this is God pursuing, chasing, and keeping his promises with people. And so the Bible Project says that these two parties working towards a common goal, right? It's God trying to work with man toward this common goal of redemption, the story of redemption that we see weaved throughout history. His story in history is this story of redemption, reconciliation, and and restoration. And he's working with and inside all of this story to bring about this common goal. He's pursuing, chasing, and a promise-keeping God, and we see that through the covenants. And so, like I said, we got a lot to cover. So we're kind of going on a plane ride today. Right, so get your seatbelts on, walking around the cabin. We're going to be flying pretty fast through a lot of the Old Testament. So uh, if you guys are interested in more like a train ride uh, to get a little bit more detail and see the country a little bit better, we actually did an Understanding the Old Testament series. We covered each of the covenants in a little bit further of a depth. So if you're interested in checking that out, that's on our app or our website. You can head there. Or if you're more up for maybe a a nice bike ride or leisurely walk, we actually still have our companion guides uh, that follow along with this series. We give you guys some passages, some questions to wrestle through uh, that take it at a deeper level still. So if you're interested in that, you can grab those in the back. Grab a partner or two, read it throughout the week, uh, discuss it, what you guys are learning through the readings, what you're learning through here, and that'll just be a great kind of companion guide throughout this series. So, you guys ready for a plane ride? Ready? We're going to start off with uh, the covenant God has with Abraham. So it's going to be in Genesis 12. If you guys want to turn there, you can. If you need a Bible, we have several in the back. If you don't own one, we want you guys to take that home as a gift. You guys can have that Bible. Uh, But we'll also have it up on the screens. And like I said, we're going to be going all the way through the Old Testament today. So we're going to be all over the place. Uh, So it's okay if you just follow with us along on the screen. So we're going to be in Genesis 12, where God is talking to Abram, who later becomes Abraham. So Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God's response to a world spiraling out of control is he says, hey, I want to bless you. Which is interesting. Bless. When God says, you know, this blessing of God, what it is is it's his relational presence in one's life. It's God with us. When he says, hey, I'm I'm giving you my blessing. I'm going to be with you. That's what he's saying when he wants to bless people. He wants to be with them. What's the opposite of that? Curse, right? Curse is to be sent away from God. To no longer be in his presence. And that happens in the garden, right? They're cursed because of their sin. They can't be with God anymore. He sends them away because he can't be with them. But immediately what he wants to do is reverse the curse. He wants to bless them and bring them back to him. That's the first thing that he says, hey, no, yeah, I had to curse you. You had to go away. But the first thing I want to do is bless you and bring you back. And so that's what he's doing through this covenant. He says, so if you're taking notes, covenant with Abraham, God picks a person to bless. So through him, he can bless all people. He's going to try and bring himself to one person and a people so that he can bring himself together with all all people. We'll see how that pans out in a bit, but it starts with Abraham. He says, hey, Abram, follow me, and I'll bless you, and I'll bless all people through you. So he establishes this covenant a little bit later in Genesis 15, Uh, and so it's actually a pretty cool ceremony that they do uh, for covenants. Um, We have marriage ceremonies, and they had their own ceremonies for covenant agreements back then for promises, and what they would do, he actually, God actually has Abraham grab a bunch of different animals and cut them in half, and so what they do is usually both parties walk through the animals saying the covenant and what they agree on and that they would say, if we don't agree or follow through on any of this, may we become like these animals. Seems kind of like a crazy thing, but it's, that's what their process was. And so we see that God confirming this with Abraham in Genesis 15 because it makes sense. He's like, hey, well, how do I know you're going to do this? So he establishes this covenant here. Let's go ahead and look at it. Genesis 15. As the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, and for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure." When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared, representing God, and passed through the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Got them all. So that's the covenant that he makes and establishes with him. But you know what the interesting thing is? God's the only one that passes through those pieces. He's saying that even if Abraham is unfaithful, even if man is unfaithful, God is going to be faithful. He's going to keep his promises even when man can't. And sure enough, we see Abraham not do too hot right off the bat, right? 
He tries to have this promised son, right? They didn't have any kids at the point. And God is like, hey, I'm going to give you a son. And they didn't have any kids at that point. So he's like, well, I have these expectations of the way I want God to do it. And he's not doing it yet. So he went about trying to do it in his own way. And he has a son through his wife's servant, Hagar. And just not the way that God wanted to do it. He's like, no, I have another way that I was going to do this. And he also tries to sell his wife two times, which never a good idea, guys, just so you know key tip there. Never try to sell your wife, right? So he clearly wasn't always following God perfectly, but God still used him, right? And he ended up still bringing Isaac, the promised child, the promised son that he was going to provide to him, ended up bringing them out. And he actually makes this crazy test, this crazy story where he says, hey, is this promised child that I've been talking about? I want you to sacrifice him. Which in that culture was a little more normal. It's like, hey, you know what? The gods usually asked people to sacrifice their kids, things like that. It was like their dedication. So he's like, hey, he was testing them and saying, hey, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I've promised this to you. Do you still trust me? And he did. He trusted God and went to sacrifice him. But God provided another sacrifice. He's like, no, no, I wanted to see if you trust me. And so sure enough, Isaac ends up growing up, right? and being used by God. God works through him. He marries a woman named Rebecca, who also struggles with barrenness. Uh, But she not only gets one child, but two. She gets twins, Jacob and Esau, right? These guys are very different from each other, uh, but God still works through both of them, but specifically through the line of Jacob is who God uses to call out his people. His name is interesting. It means deceiver, So if you guys look at his story, it actually kind of follows his life. And so names are pretty interesting in the Bible, and they usually mean some pretty cool stuff. And so his name actually gets changed to Israel, which means one who contends with God. He has this this whole wrestling match with God, basically, in the Bible. And he's like, hey, you're renamed to Israel, one who wrestles or contends with God. Does that name sound familiar? It's the people of Israel, the nation of Israel children of Israel, right? His family ends up becoming those people, the 12 tribes. So crazy story on all the different women that he has them with, right? But he eventually, you know, it's through Rachel that we see Joseph. We see Joseph come through that line. But his name here is interesting because we say Israel, we see these people kind of stay true to his name as well. They wrestle through with God throughout the rest of the Bible. Even as God continues to work through Joseph here, right? He's the one with the coat. He's the the one that got sold into slavery, into Egypt, uh, from his brothers. I have some brothers. They weren't that mean to me, which is great. You know, only got picked on a little bit. But they sold him into slavery, which is crazy. Uh, But God still used that. God still used Joseph. When he was down there, he ended up becoming the almost second greatest in command. Biggest probably in the world at that time in Egypt. And so he had this, all this power that God ended up using through, but he continued to follow and stay faithful to God. Eventually, there was a famine in the land, and the people needed, his family specifically needed help, and so they go down to Egypt, and he's able to provide for them. And they ended up realizing, oh my goodness, it's my brother. It's him, right? Really cool story. Uh, and God still uses all of that. And he ends up saving his family from that family, uh, famine, and so that's where we find them at the end of Genesis. It's about 70 of them in all, living in, starting in Genesis, or at the end of, of that. And it's like, hey, there we're at. There's no full really nation yet. They don't have any land that God promised them yet. But there's 70 of them. And God's still pursuing them and chasing them and there with them. From there, we see the people kind of continue to grow. Those 70 people multiply into thousands upon thousands in Egypt. And Egypt sees that and they're like, well, we can 
You can really get a lot of work done with these guys, right? So they enslave the Israelites. And so that's when we hear the story of Moses. Right? We've got eventually calls him through a burning bush and says, hey, we need to free my people that are enslaved through the Egyptians. And so that's the promise. That he's like, hey, you know what? That's going to happen, but we're going to free them, right? He prophesied about that. He said, hey, this is going to happen. We're going to do this. And sure enough, he does, right? Moses leads them out of there. God has these 10 plagues uh, that he proves his power to, to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, and he leads them out of there. Eventually, he takes them to the wilderness, and at the end of the wilderness, right, they go on to this mountain, and that's where God gives another covenant with his people. So that's in Exodus 19. We're going to go ahead and look at that one real fast. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And how I carried you on Ingle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So this is where he's on Mount Sinai, right? And he gets the Ten Commandments. He gets all these laws on how they're to live. This is the next covenant that God makes with uh, his people. And so if you're taking notes, the covenant with Israel is that God chooses to dwell with his people so he can demonstrate his character to the world. I remember when I was uh, younger and a new Christian, I was so excited to try and read through the Bible in a year. And so I tried to start this plan where you start in Genesis and you read all the way through. And by the time I got to these laws and all this stuff in, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I just got so bogged down because there's just like all this different stuff. Like it didn't make sense to me. I was like, I don't know why they have these different anointing oils and why do they have all these animals they're sacrificing. I was looking at it as a piece of the puzzle. I was like, well, this doesn't make sense. I haven't read the whole story to know why it, how it fits in. But it didn't click until I realized, hey, it's part of this bigger story, right? That God wants to dwell with his people to show them his character. Show that he is holy and a just, perfect, righteous God. And these laws help these people live right, just, and holy to show to the world who God is. He calls them a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They represent God to the world, right? That's what they were doing. That's what he wants them to be. So God is pursuing them in this covenant relationship, in this beautiful mix of law and love, like Tim was talking about, Tim Keller. He's like, there's this mix, really. It's like both of them kind of expound on each other in this law and love mix of like, yes, I want you to be holy, but I love you and will be there for you. And it mixes together. Unfortunately, right, the people of Israel didn't stay holy or do too well right off the bat, right? They ended up worshiping a golden calf. Actually, on, while Moses is on the way back getting those laws, right, from God, they ended up worshiping that calf. But God is still, and through all of this, patiently loving sinners while justly demanding holiness. And that's really where sacrifices come in. They had all these sacrifices they had to do, slaughtering animals to pay for their sin. God couldn't be in the presence of sin because he was holy. And so they had these sacrifices to help cover for that. And so they were temporary sacrifices, but that's part of what this system was for. Because we know that, hey, God loves us more than we can dream. But he's also more holy than we understand. And that's a huge part of who he is. And so God isn't a killjoy offering all these laws and rules just because, you know, he just wants us to have no fun. 
It's because it has a purpose. It points us to who he is, his character, and it shows us the best way to live as well because he loves us so much and wants the best for us. So the Israelites are wrestling with this and constantly continue to wrestle with this as he try, and Moses leads them, tries to put this before them. And right before they go into the promised land, right, this land that God says, hey, this is another promise. I'm going to give you this land, right? Before they go into that, uh, Moses reminds them of all of this. In Deuteronomy 10, this is what he says. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, walk in obedience, to love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your good. They're all wrapped up. And later in, in Deuteronomy 10, he reminds them, hey, it's all wrapped up together. But remember, your ancestors who went into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made them, made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. He's saying, guys, remember these promises? He's keeping that promise. He's been pursuing, chasing us, and keeping those promises that he said. Don't forget that as we now head into this next promise that God's going to fulfill. And so sure enough, Joshua is the one that leads them into this promised land. They go around conquering different cities. The Battle of Jericho was one of them, where they walked around the city and the walls came down, right? God fought for them on so many occasions, leading them through and conquering the land that he had promised to them. Throughout all of that, though, we see Israel continue to wrestle with God, again, staying true to their name. They're going to contend with him and wrestle with him, staying faithful and not staying faithful, but we see God still pursuing them. So they didn't fully take all the land that they were supposed to, um, and God continues to bring other leaders in to call them back to God. And so we get into this cycle of the judges, where God would raise up a judge, right? He'd raise a judge to deliver them, and then the cycle goes that Israel turns to other gods, and then Israel becomes subject to other nations. And then Israel turns to God for help. And then he raises up another judge. And then they do the whole cycle again and again and over and over and over again as they wrestle with God. And we see that pattern throughout judges as God raises up leader after leader. And eventually they're like, hey, you know what? We want an earthly king. That's like kind of the next phase. They're like, hey, we want a king like these nations around us. God, you're our king, but we don't want you as a king. We want an earthly king like the nations around us. Okay, it's the cool thing to do right now. And all that, they're like, you don't want a king. It's not going to be good for you guys. They're like, we want a king. And so God gives them a king, a guy that initially like, hey, yeah, he'd be a good king, right? He's tall. He's good looking. Right? It was Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. He may have started off okay, but he actually ended up turning and not following God as closely as he should have. And so God says, I'm going to raise up another king, another king outside of your family line. And that king was David. It was David, who was said to be a man after God's own heart, which is a huge compliment. So he would become one of the greatest kings of Israel of that time and lead them through a lot of what God wanted them to do even though he also had his own struggles as well. And so that's really the next person that God makes a covenant with. It's through David. So it's in 2 Samuel 7 where we find our next one. It says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. This is God talking to, to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
little bit later, he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So he promises a future king, this kingdom that will last forever, and this king will be provided by God. So in this covenant with David, God makes a promise to the king of Israel that will lead to the arrival of the king of the world. So this is his next promise showing that, hey, yes, I'm still pursuing you, and I will continue to pursue you to this king that I will provide, showing that God is faithful even when they're not. Because soon after this, as it said, David's son built, uh, built God a temple, but he doesn't stay consistent and ends up little by little drifting away from leading and following God. So soon after him, the kingdom splits, right? The nation begins split into two different northern and southern kingdoms. And it never gets much better from there, right? The northern kingdom never has any good kings. The southern kingdom has a few. One of them named Josiah, probably a good guy, I don't know. But all these different kings, and they still end up drifting and wrestling with God throughout that. And throughout all those wickedness of the kings, who's God send? He sends prophets, Prophets are another proof that Jesus is a chasing, pursuing, promise-keeping God. He's sending them saying, hey, you're drifting, you're far away. That's not how I want you to live. Come back. Come back to God. And he sends prophet after prophet to do that. And we see a lot of that in the Old Testament. And so we see this holy and righteous God who's perfect making these promises. And so for him to be holy and righteous... He can't tell a lie. He can't not fulfill a promise. So they have to come true. Dr. Charles Stanley says it like this, the validity of a promise is dependent on the character and ability of the one who makes it. So to truly understand why God will do what he says, we must fully understand his character and the attributes that prove he is trustworthy. Makes sense. Whoever makes the promise dependent on that person, if we know that promise will probably come true or not. We all may know someone in our lives that says, oh, I promise I'll do that, or I promise this will happen, or I promise I'll make sure I get that done. But knowing their character and knowing their response to the past, we're like, I don't know if I can trust them, right? But when God makes a promise, we know because he's holy, he's perfect, he's just, and seeing how he's continued to make promises and fulfill them, that, hey, it's going to come true. He's going to fulfill his promise. But if we're honest... Guys, we can still struggle with understanding and trusting God with his promises. This is something we all still wrestle with today. It's like, well, we know God is trustworthy, but I'm still hurting. I'm broken. I'm lost. I feel alone. When God promises to be with me, to love me, and take care of me, why do I feel this way? Dr. Stanley continues with a rather challenging uh, comment. He says, sometimes we become disappointed in God because we think he's failed to keep his word. But the problem is our understanding, not his faithfulness. Some of the other commentators I was reading this week says that our culture, and really all of humanity, but specifically our culture, has this growing patience problem. As our technology advances, right, we have texts and, and fast computers and all this technology that just makes things faster and makes our expectations and our, our needs met right away, it makes it easier and easier for us to lose patience, right? And I think we start to apply this patience problem to God. 
we end up thinking, well, God, I prayed for this. Why didn't you answer this on my timeline? Or God, this is what I'm expecting. Why didn't you do this my way? Or, Why didn't, I, I want it right now. Like I need this to be, we get used to that and apply it to God too. And so how do we manage this tension? Because these are all blessings. These are great things. Yes, it's great to have that technology. But how do we manage this tension in this culture? I think the key is understanding the difference of expectations versus relationships. Expectations are always looking into the future. But relationships operate in the here and now. Greatest way I understand this is understanding my relationship with my daughter, Liliana Joy. She's been here today, right? She's awesome. Two and a half months starting to roll over, right? It's like sweet. She's growing up. But it's easy to have all these expectations on her and to say, oh, well, we really want her to grow up quickly, to grow up healthy. We want her to be able to walk soon and talk soon and be able to do all these different things, have these expectations that we, we want her to be at at certain times. We're hoping and expecting the teen years to be painless as possible, if that's even possible, and we eventually get through those and her to graduate and to grow up, right, and to be this person that we have expecting in our minds. And sometimes it's easy for me to get caught in those expectations and thinking, oh, I want her to succeed and do all these things that we end up missing my present relationship with Liliana. That I'm like, oh, I want her to be all this and this and this, so I do these things to make sure she is this and meets my expectations that I end up missing the time I get with her. So instead, I should be focusing on my relationship with her and enjoying the blowouts and diapers and, and the, the late nights, but enjoying what I can in the moment and being present in that relationship, soaking it up. Those expectations are good, but the key is to let the relationship overshadow those expectations, to not get stuck in the expectations. And we can apply that to our relationship with God. We sometimes get stuck in expecting things from God, for God, or of God. And we're like, well, God, I expected you to do it this way. Or God, you promised to take care of me, but I, and I expect you to provide in all these different ways. Or I expect you to do this for me. Or I expect this of you. Or I expect this promise to complete in this way and in my timeline. And we end up getting caught in those expectations, which can be good, but we get caught in them so much, we miss the present relationship with God. We miss how he's pursuing and loving us right now. It's easy to look at Israel and see how they mess things up, how they got caught up in their expectations of, well, this wasn't how I expected following God would be, so let's worship another God. It's easy to look at their mistakes and be like, well, they totally missed it. Right? They missed the relationship there. But if we're honest and can reflect a little bit on maybe how are we missing God loving and pursuing us right now? 2 Peter 3 encourages us with this. It says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Repentance is that turning from our sin no longer living the life of sin, but living the way God wants us to. When we live the way he wants us to, when we say yes to Jesus, that leads to blessing. We end up becoming back into that relationship with God, and it starts with repentance. He wants us to be blessed. He said that leads to blessing, being reunited with God. And the whole Old Testament is talking about and leading to this way that we can be blessed, be reunited 
The Old Testament ends in darkness, right? It ends, the kingdoms are split, there's silence for a long time. But that's not the end of the story, and that's not his last covenant. The whole Old Testament, there's prophets talking about this new testament that is coming. There's a new covenant that is coming. God will make a new covenant, a new covenant. And it concludes in a person, right? Climaxes in Jesus, right? The new covenant is Jesus is the fulfillment, and he's the biggest proof of a promise-keeping God. He's the one that fulfills all the other covenants as well. He was the one to crush the serpent's head, promised from Genesis 3. He is the faithful Israelite to truly and perfectly obey the law. He's the king from the line of David. He's also the descendant of Abraham that would ultimately be the blessing to the world. For him dying on the cross, everyone has the opportunity to then believe in him, making it possible for people to be reunited with God, right? Blessing, right? Be back with God. That was through Jesus was the blessing. And not only that, But like in the covenant with Abraham, when darkness surrounded Abraham, darkness also surrounded Jesus on what we look at Good Friday this week. Darkness surrounded him, and he was torn apart like the animals in the covenant process. He was torn apart for us, paying for the payment that we needed to pay for. He paid for that on the cross, representing us and giving us a way out as well. But it wouldn't be a good Friday if there wasn't a resurrection three days later, right? And so that's what happened. Jesus comes back, or Jesus rises from the dead, being the King of kings and the Lord of lords, which we actually celebrate today as well. Today's Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. And so the week before Jesus' death, he rides into Jerusalem. And we see people saying, Hosanna, right? Wait, they're realizing this is the king. It's in John 12. Let's go ahead and look at it real fast, and we'll wrap up. It says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They realized, hey, this is this coming king. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. And so they started to realize a little bit that, hey, this is the promised Messiah. God has been pursuing and keeping his promises. And Jesus is the one he's doing it through. They started to realize it. But they were still caught up in their expectations. They expected a king to ride in on a horse and battle their way into freedom. They expected this leader to conquer and and battle the evil forces of the world and win that way. They got caught in their expectations of looking for this crazy, powerful leader of of, of fighting and, and war. That's what they were expecting. They got caught in that and missed the relationship that Jesus was actually wanting them to have. Instead of riding in on a horse, which symbolizes war, what did Jesus ride in on? Donkey's colt, which actually symbolizes peace. So it was significant for him to do that, and the fact that he fulfilled that prophecy as well. So he rides in proclaiming peace, saying, hey, I'm not going to rule with, with, with hate and power and, 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 and all this anger and, and destruction, but I'm going to 
lead with love and perfectness, with holiness. That's how he's going to lead. And that's what we celebrate is him coming in a week before his death and saying, hey, yes, this is the promised Messiah, the Messiah that the whole Old Testament is pointing to and saying, yes, this, he's the one through which we can find this new covenant, the one that the biggest proof that God is a promise-keeping God because Jesus has come and fulfilled all these promises that God talked about. So through this and through all of this, I know we just blew through the Old Testament. We did it. We made it. I want you guys to walk away that God is a pursuing, chasing, promise-keeping God. You may be at the point where you need to first understand this idea of how to get this blessing in the first place. Maybe you've never understood Jesus or said yes to him. The first step is that repentance idea. So you're realizing, yeah, I need some help. And saying, God, I, I want to lean into you. And we say, you say yes to Jesus. What he did on the cross, you accept that sacrifice. And then turn and live what he has us living. Maybe that's where you're at today. Because to re- first receive that blessing, we need to start with repentance. But maybe there's also several of us, too, that maybe need to focus on the current relationship. Let that overshadow our expectations. What expectations are we getting caught up in and missing the current relationship with God? How is he pursuing you today? Focus on that. How is he loving on you right now? What is he doing in your life that's pointing him towards you? He is. He's chasing after us. He's pursuing us and he's keeping his promises. It may not be in the way we expect or want, but it's the way that's best for us and the way that he wants and it's, it's great and it's good to know all these promises, all these covenants that God keeps with his people. To know how many there are is great, but the most important thing is to know that God keeps every promise. Let's pray.